Well, I remember it all as though it were just yesterday. In fact, I don't think I'll ever be able to erase the memory no matter how hard I try. I'm talking about the day five years ago when I took my family to an amusement park. My kids were a fair bit younger then and they wanted to go on one particular ride called the Giggle Go Round. Yes, the Giggle Go Round. Here's a picture of it. Looks innocent enough, doesn't it? Don't be fooled. Anyway, on my kids popped, sitting side by side in the one carriage. Beth and I standing outside the uh, uh, barrier, you know, camera poised, uh, ready to capture some magical moments. Well, the ride started and it was all smiles. That is, until one of my kids discovered that right there in front of them was a button. A single button. A button which, when pushed, made a honking noise. (laughs) Now, of course, for a preschooler, that was like finding gold. Well, when child number one uh, started honking, immediately that caught the attention of child number two. and, And suddenly, both children wanted a honk. In fact, it seems that both children wanted exclusive honking rights. And so suddenly, there on the giggle-go-round, all hell broke loose. Like, like two seagulls fighting over a chip, my children went ballistic. I'm telling you, there was screaming and hair-pulling, there was a wrestling and shrieking, along with the odd honk-honk, you know, when one child momentarily managed to fend the other one off. And as Beth and I stood there behind the barrier, there was absolutely nothing we could do. Every every time our kids' carriage came around, we were like, no, 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 stop that, children. No, 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 don't stop strangling one another. No, 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 no eye gouging. Now, where does all that sibling hostility come from, you might ask? Well, if the cold judgmental stares of passers-by that day are anything to go by, the parents are to blame. And maybe there's something to that. But, you know, I don't think that this kind of hostility is unique to my family, nor do I think it's restricted to preschoolers. No, though the issues may you know, be somewhat more complex than who gets to honk, Sadly, I think most families experience strained relationships at one time or another. In fact, in some families, there are members who haven't spoken to each other for years. Families where grudges are held and and bitterness runs deep. Of course, in our studies in Genesis, we've actually seen the true source of all these conflicts, haven't we? We're through the, the sin of Adam and Eve... Enmity between people first entered the world. Enmity that's been passed down through the generations. I'm sure you'll remember the sibling rivalry, the sibling hostility between Cain and Abel and Ishmael and Isaac and Esau and Jacob and and more recently between Joseph and his brothers. It's been a recurring theme throughout Genesis and a serious one because it is a threat to the fulfilment of God's promise to bless Abraham's family. I mean, how can they be blessed if they destroy one another? And so as we now approach the end of Genesis, we're left wondering, what is it going to take to break the cycle of brotherly hostility? Well, today we reach Genesis chapter 41. 
And if you don't already have a Bible open in front of you, can I encourage you to grab one now and turn with me there, Genesis 41. We're currently in the middle of the account of Joseph's life. So let me remind you of the story so far. Joseph is the 11th of 12 sons, born to Jacob and his dad's favourite. The fact that Jacob doesn't try to hide, even giving Joseph a magnificent coat to parade around in. Joseph's older brothers are filled with jealousy and hatred, feelings that are only intensified when Joseph tells them about his dreams, dreams suggesting that one day the whole family will bow down before him. And it all comes to a head one day when 17-year-old Joseph visits his brothers as they tend the family flocks far from home. When his brothers see him off in the distance, they're filled with murderous thoughts. But rather than killing him, in the end, they opt to sell him as a slave to some passing traders. After all, why not make a buck? The brothers take Joseph's fancy coat, dip it in some goat's blood and take it back to Jacob, leading him to believe that his beloved son has been killed by a wild animal. Of course, Jacob's heart is broken. And you thought your family had problems. This is a particularly dysfunctional one right here, isn't it? It's a dreadful story of cruelty and deceit and betrayal. And Joseph has every reason to hate his brothers. But in the ensuing weeks and months and years, Joseph goes on to experience a number of uh, just-so-happened events in his life that will all work out to be very significant. Uh, For example... The traders, who just so happened to be passing the brothers that day, just so happened to be travelling to Egypt. And there, Joseph just so happens to be sold to a high-ranking official named Potiphar, whose wife just so happens to take an inappropriate shine to him. Though Joseph behaves honourably, he's falsely accused of attempted rape and sent to jail. But not any old jail. No, because Joseph works for Potiphar, he just so happens to be sent to Pharaoh's prison for high-ranking officials. Whilst there, Joseph just so happens to be given responsibility for looking after two prisoners who, it just so happens, used to work closely with Pharaoh, his cupbearer and his baker. One night, both men just so happen to have disturbing dreams. They tell Joseph about their dreams and he interprets them saying that in three days the cupbearer will return to Pharaoh's service, but the baker will be put to death. It all goes as Joseph says, but despite asking the cupbearer to put in a good word for him with Pharaoh, the cupbearer just so happens to forget all about Joseph. In fact, he forgets about him for two whole years, until one day when Pharaoh just so happens to have two disturbing dreams of his own. In one, seven fat cows are gobbled up by seven scrawny ones. And in the other, seven healthy heads of grain are gobbled up by seven scraggly ones. None of Pharaoh's attendants are able to interpret the dreams. And that's when suddenly the cupbearer just so happens to remember Joseph. And so it is that Joseph just so happens to be summoned into the presence 
of Pharaoh himself. Here, let's pick up the story from Genesis chapter 41, verse 25. Chapter 41, verse 25. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good heads of grain are seven years. It is one and the same dream. The seven lean, ugly cows that came up afterward are seven years, and so are the seven worthless heads of grain scorched by the east wind. They are seven years of famine. It is just as I said to Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt, but seven years of famine will follow them. Then all the abundance in Egypt will be forgotten and the famine will ravage the land. The abundance in the land will not be remembered because the famine that follows it will be so severe. The reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God and God will do it soon. Well, it just so happens that Pharaoh is very impressed with Joseph and so that in a single day this forgotten, imprisoned slave rises to become Pharaoh's right-hand man with authority over all Egypt. I mean, talk about a rags-to-riches story. This is extraordinary. And guided by God, Joseph puts a wise plan in place. Throughout the seven years of abundance, he has excess grain stored away so that it could be sold during the seven years of famine. And as it turns out, it is a plan that not only saves the people of Egypt from starvation, but also the surrounding nations. Here, read with me from chapter 41, verse 56. 41, 56. When the famine had spread over the whole country, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold grain to the Egyptians. For the famine was severe throughout Egypt. And all the world came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe everywhere. This is where it gets really interesting. Because meanwhile, back in Canaan, Joseph's father Jacob and his 11 brothers are also getting rather short on food. In fact, things get so bad that Jacob sends his, his 10 oldest sons off to Egypt to buy some grain. When the brothers turn up in Egypt to buy some food, Joseph just so happens to be there handing it out. What a moment this must have been for him. I mean, here are his brothers, the ones who had brought such misery into his life. And now Joseph finally has the power to crush them, and get even. So what will he do? Well, looking very Egyptian and speaking through an interpreter, Joseph plays the role of suspicious official. And the brothers don't recognise him at all. Spies, aren't you? He asked them sternly. No, 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 we're not, they say. We're, we're, we're just honest men. Uh, ten brothers are wanting to buy food and take it back to our father and our younger brother back in Canaan. What joy, joyful news for Joseph to hear that his, his father and Benjamin are still alive. I, I'm sure he has thought about them many, many times over the years. And yet here in front of him are the callous men who robbed him of two precious decades with them. So Joseph goes on with the, the charade because he wants to know, are these 
the same cruel brothers he remembers, or, or have they changed? And so Joseph devises a shrewd plan to reveal their true character. Here, read with me from chapter 42, verse 18. 42, 18. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers stay here in prison, while the rest of you go and take grain back to your starving households. But you must bring your youngest brother to me, so that your words may be verified, and that you may not die. This they proceeded to do. So they said to one another, Surely we're being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life. But he, we wouldn't listen. That's why this distress has come on us. Reuben replied, Didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you wouldn't listen. Now he must give an accounting for his blood. They did not realise that Joseph could understand them since he was using an interpreter. He turned away from them and began to weep, but then came back and spoke to them again. He had Simeon's taken, uh, taken from them and bound before their eyes. You know, hearing uh, Reuben talking about the brother's mistreatment of him is just overwhelming for Joseph. And, and 22 years of, of, of pent-up emotion um, here come pouring out in his tears. But after regaining his composure, Joseph uh, loads them up with food and, and sends the brothers on their way. And when they get home, uh, they tell their dad what happened, including the Egyptian official's demand for Benjamin to be brought to him. But distressed at the thought of losing his new favourite, Jacob refuses to let Benjamin go. That is until the famine becomes so severe that Jacob's left with no choice. When the brothers arrive back in Egypt, Joseph has them invited to a special banquet at his home. And it all feels very, very suspicious to the brothers. And they're terrified, especially when they find themselves seated in the order of their age. It's like this guy can see straight into their hearts. Well, Joseph manages to play it cool until his eyes finally fall on Benjamin. Oh, Benjamin, how, how he has missed Benjamin. And tears fill his eyes and Joseph hurries out of the room to weep unobserved. You can imagine the sobs racking his body, can't you, as he, as he realises afresh all that he's lost. After he composes himself, Joseph comes back in and sets his master plan into motion, a, a test that will determine if his brothers are really still ruled by envy and rivalry or not. The next morning, when the 11 brothers head off back to Canaan, uh, Joseph has his special silver cup planted in Benjamin's bag and then sends his steward to catch up with the brothers and claim that they have stolen the cup, which, of course, they insist they haven't. Everyone's bag is checked, and to everyone's horror, the cup is discovered in Benjamin's bag. Full of dread, they return to Joseph, who decrees that Benjamin must now stay in Egypt as his slave. Well, what an ingenious test of the brother's character. You know, will history now repeat itself? 
I mean, here's the perfect opportunity for the ten older brothers to once again rid themselves of daddy's favourite, consigning Benjamin, like Joseph, to a life of slavery in Egypt. And it would be so easy. Well, it's at this moment that Judah, who, let's face it, up until this point in the story, would not be getting the decent person of the year award, does something really quite extraordinary. He offers to sacrifice himself in place of Benjamin. Judah, Judah, who 22 years earlier was the one who came up with the idea of selling Joseph for a prophet and who had heartlessly placed his bloodstained coat at his father's feet. Judah, Judah is now prepared to give his own life rather than harm Benjamin and break his father's heart. It's an amazing moment. And in my opinion, what follows has to be one of the most deeply moving scenes in the whole Bible. As Joseph, Joseph now overcome with emotion, clears the room of everyone but his brother's and reveals his identity as the brother they betrayed. As for the brothers, well, they are speechless and terrified. I mean, what is Joseph going to do to them? But Joseph kindly reassures them. He, he's not out for vengeance. Why? Why not? Because he's able to look past all the evil acts of his brothers to see the sovereign mercy of God at work. He's able to see how God has been behind all of those just-so-happened moments of his life to ultimately help him and his family survive the famine. In fact, far from wanting to punish his brothers, Joseph wants the very best for them. And so he organises for them and for their families to come and join him there in Egypt, where he promises to abundantly provide for them. Here, read with me the final verses for today from uh, chapter 45, verse 1. And I tell you, if you can read this and not get a lump in your throat, then you have a heart of stone, my friend. Chapter 45, verse 1. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants and cried out, have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother, Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been famine in the land. And for the next five years... There will be no ploughing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to pre preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. 
He made me father to Pharaoh and lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me and don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me. You, your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herds and all you have. I will provide for you there because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. Well, as you can imagine, uh, when the brothers head back to Canaan, Jacob, he can't believe their story. That That is until he sees all the carts overflowing with extravagant provisions And then he's just so overjoyed. His son is alive. And together the whole family heads out of their famine-stricken homeland to enjoy the abundance of Egypt and the favour of its highest official. It's an amazing story, isn't it? Amazing. You know, over and over and over again in Genesis, we've seen sibling hostility wreaking havoc And we've been left wondering, what will it take to break the cycle? And now here we see it, don't we? It takes one person recognising the sovereign mercy of God and choosing to be his agent of grace to those who have wronged him terribly. And of course, friend, it's obvious, isn't it, that this whole amazing saga of Joseph brilliantly foreshadows the story of God's ultimate agent of grace, Jesus. The one who, according to God's sovereign mercy, suffered at the hands of evil men, died and rose again, that he might offer eternal forgiveness and reconciliation to his brothers, to a world estranged from him. And so it is, friends, that now through Jesus, we have come to know the sovereign mercy of God in our lives. And it's such a beautiful thing, isn't it? The fact that we, who were once hopeless slaves, slaves to sin and destined to languish eternally in the darkest of dungeons, to think that Jesus stepped in, offering us forgiveness and reconciliation at the cross, so that he could break the endless cycle of human hostility towards God once and for all. To think that he did that, that that he might raise us up to share with him the abundance of his heavenly riches forever. Yet Joseph brilliantly foreshadows God's ultimate agent of grace, Jesus. And in him, we have now experienced God's sovereign mercy. And so it is, friends, that in response to all this, it is now our turn to be God's agents of grace in the world. It's now our turn to offer the same kind of forbearance and forgiveness that's been shown to us, even in our families, especially in our families. Because let's face it, friends, For most of us, there are few people in this world who can push our buttons like the people on the giggle-go-round that is our family. 
Hong Hong. It's true, isn't it? I mean, that's why so many people dread family gatherings. That's why, for many of us, you know, when September rocks around and we see the Christmas decorations up in, in the shopping centres, our heart sinks. Because for some of us at Christmas time, the halls aren't the only thing we want to deck. It's why for so many of us, our family vacations seem to be reminiscent of Winston Churchill's famous speech. You know the one. We shall fight them on the beaches. We shall fight them in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. There's just something about family, isn't there? They're just able to get under our skin like few other people can. But friends, like Joseph, we need to recognise the sovereignty of God in our lives. If you just so happen to have button pushes in your family, guess who put them there? It's no mistake. Because there are no just-so-happened moments when it comes to our God. No, no matter how dysfunctional your family might be, God has sovereignly put you there. And now it is your job to be God's agent of grace in that place, offering forgiveness time and time and time again, just as you've been forgiven. It kind of reminds me of that time when uh, the disciple Peter came up to Jesus and said, "Uh, Lord, uh, tell me, how many times do I have to forgive my brother when he sins against me? You know, what about seven? You reckon that's a good number, Jesus? Forgive him seven times and then after that can let him have it? Do you remember Jesus' answer? He said, no, 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 Peter, not seven times, but 77 times. In other words, don't ever stop forgiving your brother. And then do you remember Jesus went on to tell a parable about a man who owed the king 10,000 bags of gold, which if you you do the calculations, works out to be something like, listen to this, 200,000 years wages. That's how much he owed. Can you imagine that? Imagine a debt like that. Obviously, he can't pay it. So he begs the king for mercy and the king mercifully cancels his entire debt. But then the same man goes out and finds some other bloke who happens to owe him a hundred silver coins. You do the sum, that that works out to be about a hundred days wages. Which, let's face it, is not insignificant. But his reaction is completely OTT. He, He starts choking the man, paying no heed to his cries for mercy. When the king He's about it. He, he, he's outraged and he puts the first man in chains and has him tortured. The point of the parable is pretty clear, isn't it? You know, 200,000 years wages versus 100 days wages. They really don't compare, do they? Friends, God has forgiven us a debt that we could never repay. And now... We're called to be his agents of grace to those who have hurt us. So let me ask, friend, how are things going on the giggle-go-round that is your family? 
Are there past hurts that you're holding on to? Grudges that you're refusing to let go? Family members you refuse to speak to or about whom you can't say a nice word? Then, friend, let me remind you of these words from Ephesians chapter 4, where we're told to get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. Sure can be a pretty scary thing though, can't it? Offering forgiveness to people who've hurt us so deeply. And I'm sure lots of objections spring to mind, like, like you know, what, what if they're not repentant? Do, do I still need to forgive if they're not sorry? Well, of course, there are no guarantees about how the other person will respond. But notice that in today's story, that even before Joseph's brothers demonstrated repentance, Joseph still showed kindness to them, not having them tortured, not having them executed, but also providing generously for their needs. So we can always have a forgiving spirit and extend kindness regardless of whether or not someone's sorry. And friend, if you are like seriously struggling to know how you could possibly show kindness and compassion in your particular situation, I want to really recommend this insightful book, The Peacemaker by Ken Sandy. In fact, I can't recommend it highly enough. But friends, in all of this, let's remember to factor God in too, Okay knowing that he's able to do amazing things in the hearts of everyone concerned, including yours. So how can you be his agent of grace this week, do you think? You know, is there a phone call you need to make? Uh, A coffee date you need to arrange? An attitude you need to change? Friend, if so, let me encourage you to get on with it. And who knows? Perhaps this is the week that that great wall of hostility in your family will finally come crashing down for you. Wouldn't that just be an awesome feeling, a deeply moving moment, just like the one Joseph experienced? And even better, wouldn't that be something that brings glory to our sovereign, merciful God? Let's pray. Well, dear Father, we're so very thankful for your sovereign mercy in our lives, for the way Jesus has cancelled the debt we could never pay. Father, in light of your mercy to us, please help us to now be your agents of grace in the world and especially in our families. Please help us to do all we can to break down the walls of hostility where they exist as we show to others the same kindness and compassion you've shown to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.